we began the equanimity practice last week. And so I wanted to explore a little bit more on equanimity. And not so much from the Brahma-Vihara or the heart quality, but more from uh, equanimity that is associated with insight and understanding. And how understanding the nature of things can help the mind come to a balance of equanimity, this equanimity being the mind that is not reactive to things, the things of this world, inner and outer. And the particular area that I want to explore is really understanding, again, we've talked about it a lot over the weeks, is that ultimately no thing or experience is going to bring us any lasting fulfillment. You know, it's something that we need to hear again and again. You know, we hear it so many times that no thing or experience is going to do it for us. But that doesn't seem to uh, help us let go because the habit is so strong. So, so I want to... Um, use a couple of the uh, suttas from the Majjhima Nikaya and talk about, uh, uh, explore how the Buddha actually focuses on this particular uh, aspect of equanimity. The first one uh, that I want to look at is, for those who who like references, it's uh, the Majjhima Nikaya 46. It's called The Greater Discourse on Ways of Undertaking Things. And I really like some of these suttas a lot because, you know, they were, the Buddha taught over 2,500 years ago. And sometimes in reading these suttas, it's as if he's speaking to the modern person, like it's the same thing that we're dealing with right here and now. And it just shows how there's a certain tendency of mind that seems to have continued and does continue over the millennium of years and years and years of of humanity. So this particular discourse starts off like this. The, the The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, for the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Now, does that sound like maybe a thought that you've had (laughs) maybe a hundred (laughs) times since you've been here? And then he goes on to say, Yet although beings have this wish, desire, and longing, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now, because what do you think is the reason for that? <laughs> you know, in some ways, it's the million-dollar question, right? Why is it? Why does this happen that the things that we wish for actually seem to get further away, and the things that we really don't want seem to come closer? And we find ourselves in this cycle So the monks reply to the Buddha, they say, Our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of those words. (laughs) 
Having heard it from the Blessed One, we will remember it. <laughs> you know, it's like we have to take it in. It's this, this, take it in and hear it again and again. And then the Buddha said, then listen, bhikkhus, and attend closely to what I have to say. So the discourse goes on essentially uh, saying that people don't know what things to cultivate and to follow and what things not to cultivate and not to follow. And this is really, and, and Carol talked about this also last week, it's sort of this, this is in some ways the gist of the teachings of the Buddha. You hear this in the teachings, in the text again and again and again, the Buddha pointing to what to follow and what not to follow. Because he's really only interested in increasing happiness, increasing that which is agreeable. You know, that's, that's what the whole direction of the teachings are pointing to. How do we have a more agreeable experience in our life? How, how do, in, in some ways, how do we experience more sukha, pleasure? You know, it's an interesting thing because you think we're supposed to give up pleasure, you know, like, like stop feeling and, and experiencing pleasure, but that isn't, that isn't it. It's just how do we actually increase the pleasure? It's interesting because when we talk about equanimity, and I mentioned it one morning, that there is a quality of this sweet kind of happiness in equanimity. When the mind is really balanced and still and resting, there's a quality of this pleasure, you know, a, a feeling tone. Not, not even so much because equanimity is also it really felt very neutral, but yet there's this sweet settledness in the, the, the true equanimity. So throughout the text, what we read and what we study is what things lead us to happiness and what things lead to more suffering. And then begin to follow and cultivate the things that lead to more happiness and stop doing and engaging in the things that bring us more pain and suffering. Sally was also talking about this the other night, about the cultivation of uh, dana and sila and bhavana as pathways to more happiness, less suffering. We cultivate those qualities of mind. So the, so the teaching is on four ways of undertaking things. And this is what this particular sutta is on, four ways of undertaking things. And the first way of undertaking things is, the Buddha says, there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. And he says, this is like horrible or bad-tasting poison. Dukkha now, dukkha later. And yet this is a path that people cultivate. The second way is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and will ripen as pain in the future. He likens this to sweet-tasting poison. Sukha now, or pleasure now, dukkha later. The third is there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now but will ripen as pleasure in the future. And he likens this to horrible or bad-tasting medicine. Medicine, this healing medicine. 
dukkha now, but sukha later. Painful now, but pleasure later. And then the last way is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. And this is likened to sweet-tasting medicine. Sukha now, sukha later. I think this is really what we're looking for, right? Really. <laughs> so he has these wonderful similes for each one. I want to use the similes and then just talk a little bit how this is relevant for us. The first one, with dukkha now, dukkha later. Bhikkhus, suppose there were a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you, and after drinking from it, you will come to death and deadly suffering. Then he drank from it (laughs) without reflecting and did not relinquish it, didn't let it go. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. It's so the way the Buddha makes a simile, it's just, it's kind of ridiculous, you know. He's told that if he drinks, it's going to die, but he drinks it anyhow without reflecting, without reflecting on the consequences of that particular action. So how, how does this kind of reflect for us? How, do we, how can we understand this for, for ourselves so that we can gain some understanding from it? I'll just say a few things about it. Clearly, this is the suffering that leads to more suffering. And it really happens through the compulsion of habit. It's just a habit. It's doing things again and again without deep reflection on the consequences of that action. What's going to happen if I do this thing? In this particular one, Dukkha now, Dukkha later, the person is already in a place of pain and then acts out of that pain and causes more suffering. In a a place of pain. One place we can look at this is really around the five precepts, these beautiful guidelines for our practice. And we can see that how acting out against these precepts really is not only sometimes coming from a place of suffering, but certainly causing more suffering and harm and pain in the world. People are killed out of people's suffering, and that brings about more suffering, not only for the person who was harmed, but for the person who committed the crime. Stealing, taking things that, when people take things, thinking that somehow it's going to make them feel better. Somehow there's some kind of gratification that's going to come from that. But actually, it doesn't work. There's pain in the beginning and there's pain at the end for having done something that is harmful. Speaking, speaking with anger. How often we're in pain and we actually 
want to hurt, the intention to hurt somebody that we feel hurt by, and then afterwards feeling more pain from the action that we did. You know, sometimes we might think that, well, we maybe have purified ourselves in such a way that this doesn't affect us so much anymore. And yet I can remember a time some years ago, my early, earlier in my practice, that I decided to really focus on the precept of speech. And I, as a practice, I decided I was going to really look at my motivation for speaking, look at the intention before I spoke. And I actually took this on as a practice for a couple of years because I really wanted to understand what, where, what was the motivation for the things that I was saying. Where was it coming from? And I remember in the very beginning, as I started to explore my intention and motivation, I was horrified to find out how often I actually wanted to say things because I wanted to hurt somebody, because I had felt hurt by them through some kind of anger or some kind of humor or you know, some kind of devious kind of confused conversation. Um, so, so unclear in myself around my motivation when I started to look at this. And so I think that until we really investigate more deeply what is the motivation, what is the intention behind our actions, we may not really understand where we're acting out from and what our motivation is. Again, without reflecting the man who drank the poison, without reflecting, he didn't let it go. He just drank the medicine, drank drank the poison, and he died. Sometimes I hear from yogis how angry they are at the other yogis here. Now, this isn't going to come as a surprise uh, to you, I'm sure, because that's what happens. You know, we're living in a small community and people cut in line or they, you know, may rub up against us in ways that aren't very conscious or, you know, take food when other people haven't had food. And we see this and we get really angry about it. It's like, well, why aren't people more conscious, more sensitive? And so we're, we're acting out of our own suffering through the anger. And then we sit and meditate. And what happens? We just feel the pain of that. It's like nothing's changed. Nothing's, you know, nothing's come about through our own agitation and anger. We just sit with it and we feel more so. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. It's not the way. It's not the thing to cultivate. Or when we become envious for what others have. We feel all this envy, coveting. What good, what, what good is it? Where does it go? It's just pain that brings about more pain. Somehow we think all this is going to make us feel better somehow in some kind of confused way, but there's no possibility of any equanimity coming to any balance of mind unless we begin to look at this more carefully, look at our motivations, our intentions, where we're coming from, and what the impact is on the, on the other and also on ourselves. So the first one, dukkha now, dukkha later. The second one, sukha now, dukkha later. The Buddha says, suppose there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. 
And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, Good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good smell, good color, good taste, but it's mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color and smell and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him, but after drinking from it, he came to death and deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. This one is pretty obvious, I think. You know, again, how we act out of our own compulsive habits, and we engage in behavior that eventually leads to more pain for ourselves and maybe for others, too. The obvious one is the indulging in sense pleasures without much reflection on the consequences of our indulgence. I, one, one that we can see pretty clearly and closely for ourselves is if, is if we indulge in too much food. Not only the consequences of the pain in the belly from overeating, which is so uncomfortable, but if we're sensitive and we've been meditating for a while, we can also see how eating too much food can also dull the mind so we're not able to concentrate or see so clearly, so it has, has consequences in that way. When I was reflecting on this, I was remembering uh, we just had Thanksgiving, you know, a few weeks ago, and I and I was remembering when I was here in the early days from on a three month course, and they had the Thanksgiving dinner. They they put everything out. I think they did that this year too. They put out the pies and the ice cream and everything at the same meal. They 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 stopped doing that for a while, but I see that I see they did it again, and I remember I I just couldn't control myself. <laughs> I ate so much at that Thanksgiving meal. Everything was just so delicious and, you know, the desserts. And, you know, I couldn't not eat a dessert on Thanksgiving. And I was in so much pain. (laughs) I think I was in pain for a couple hours before my belly started to find some relief. It was just like total indulgence in the pleasure. You know, suka now, but duka later really, really painful. You know, it comes from the delusion about where true happiness really lies. You know, somehow my happiness really was in that Thanksgiving meal, and I wasn't in any kind of balance of mind, and and not not any kind of equanimity. I was in complete uh, uh, grasping and indulging and attachment, and, and then the consequences of that. We can reflect on this, too, when we can think about the pleasure that sometimes somebody could get from breaking one of the precepts. You know, the pleasure, breaking a precept of sexual, uh, uh, causing sexual harm to ourselves or another person by uh, engaging in a relationship that we shouldn't be engaging with for one reason or another, and yet there's a pleasure, you know, the same way, the, the grasping on to the pleasurable aspect, but not really reflecting deeply on what's going to happen in the future. It just hardly ever works out. You know, we hear these stories over and over, how much pain's involved in these, these kind of uh, relationships where we uh, 
uh, people get involved with people they shouldn't be getting involved with. Or the pleasure that we can get from intoxicants or substances, the immediate pleasure, and yet the, the pain that can come, the immediate pain from the, 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 the effect on the co- consciousness, on the mind state, but also the, the, the consequences in our life that it has when we do these sorts of things. Um, again, I was reflecting I was on this. I was remembering back in my early college days, you know, 18, 19 years old, when it was just the thing to drink a lot of beer and, or alcohol and just get drunk, you know. And it, there's any thought about it. It's just like what people did, and it was horrible, you know, just horrible. No, I didn't have the Dharma back in those days. I didn't have any way to really uh, think or reflect on what I was doing. And just, you know, sukha now, but so much dukkha. We see this with people's addictions and compulsions, uh, fantasizing, the fantasies that we get involved in. Yeah, pleasurable, but what, what's, is this bringing about any real long-term well-being? I think what's really wonderful in a way about the teaching here is that there's really no kind of right and wrong or bad or good here. You know, it's just common sense. You know, the Buddha is just saying, take a look. You know, if you want. He's just, if you want. And, and in the similes, it says, drink it if you want. <laughs> it's not like, don't drink it, you know, or, you know, it's really, you know, something, it's really, really bad. It's just like, yeah, if you drink it, drink from it if you want. The color or the smell will agree with you. You'll die, but, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's so, it's so, you know, I, when I read these, um, uh, when I read the text closely, there's there's such subtleties in this um, uh, in the teachings of, in this case. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong. It's nothing wrong. It's just, do you want happiness in your life or not? And if you do, this is what you have to pay attention to. So pragmatic. So the third one. Dukkha now, sukha later. Suppose, the Buddha says, suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines. And a man, and they use this actually for medicine, and a man came sick with jaundice. And they told him, good man, this fermented urine is mixed with various medicines. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting. (laughs) A little wisdom came in here. He drank from it after reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, taste, and smell did not agree with him. But after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So here's the turning. It's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And I think this is really obvious to us here because we can really see it in our meditation practice. We can see it right here. 
that our practice is hard a lot of the time. But you keep going. We keep going. We keep going. It's painful. It's dukkha. But we know that there's going to be favorable consequences. This is going to lead to happiness and well-being. Sometimes when I'm doing interviews with people and I'm hearing about how hard it is, you know, and some people not really wanting to continue or starting to get distracted or, you know, losing their focus. And I just, I feel like a cheerleader sometimes, you know, it's just like, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know, because I can see and I can, I know what's really happening as one makes a commitment in this way. All the seeds that are being planted in this uh, in this in this good practice, even though it's painful, so so this is this is so imp- important to see, sort of in the context of these teachings of what to cultivate and what not to cultivate, because this is really how we break our habits of mind, how we bring about transformation, is going into the difficulty, going into the dukkha, allowing the dukkha, because we're turning this around, we're turning the suffering around in our lives. I remember when I was um, t- t- uh, sitting a retreat in, uh, we actually was on the, the big island in Hawaii with Upandita, who was doing a, a retreat there. A group of us were there. Carol was there. Joseph was there. And he was really encouraging us to just sleep for four hours. And I had never really practiced that way. I mean, I need my sleep. But four, four hours, I mean, do you know how little sleep that is? <laughs> and yet I really, really wanted to do this. And uh, it was so hard to get up, to first go to sleep, you know, stay up long enough, and then to sleep for four hours and then wake up. I mean, I would keep, you know sometimes four and a half, maybe sometimes five. I really tried to work with it. But it was really one of the most painful things that I did. But I did make a commitment that I was going to stay in the upright position for 20 hours or, or 19. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> 19 and a half. <laughs> And I was rooming with two other women, and they were like warriors. You know, the alarm would go off, and they'd get up. And, you know, and I just was dragging myself out of bed. And I thought, oh, well, they're doing it. I have to do it. You know, it was really, really hard. One of the hardest things I did. But actually, I, had, I learned so much about the mind state of sleepiness and tiredness and <laughs> dullness and to the point where I actually don't have that much resistance to it now. You know, it's like, okay, that's just another mind state. You know, it, I had so much resistance to it in the beginning. And it really, really shifted things around for me in that respect. And, of course, there was really contributed to the deepening of concentration as well, which was the whole point. But it was really a powerful teaching to go through that pain in that way. And we do that. All Many people here are doing this, you know, sitting with this mental pain, physical pain, and just say, I'm going to sit with it, I'm going to be present, I'm going to stay here no matter what, because something's happening, I'm cutting through. Carol was talking about this too, with this vigilance of mind, uh, working with the difficulties of mind, not turning away, 
We've talked a lot about this, and yet also knowing how to balance our energy so that we're not pushing too hard, not pressing down too hard, but finding a balance of mind to keep our practice going. This dukkha now, sukhalata, really is about renunciation and restraint, the practices of renunciation and restraint, which really is the keeping to the five precepts. You know, we keep to the five precepts because these, these hold us. These are guidelines for us. Or many of you are using the eight precepts as a way to work with uh, uh, overindulgence or habitual tendencies to uh, greed or craving or aversion. Or the monk and the nun who are here with us. You know, and the monks and the nuns who are, who are, who are practicing the Vinaya, the rules of the Vinaya, and all the renunciation, all the restraint that goes into that kind of life, and the uh, inspiration that they are for us in this regard. So we, we look at this, ways that we're breaking habits. Um, there was a, a one person who came on this retreat and went cold turkey on her cigarette addiction. You know, had smoked lots of cigarettes and then just said, stopping. I mean, the pain, the dukkha of that, really, and to sit in meditation, to go through that, and yet know that the consequences, the benefits uh, that are going to come from that are going to be so, uh, there's going to be so much sukha, so much agreeable uh, that comes from that. This is what brings the balance of mind, this equanimity of mind. As we start to work with the habits that throw us off, that throw us off into uh, our, our, our painful states of mind. And then the last one, sukha now, sukha later. This is the sweet one, huh? The Buddha says, suppose there were curd, honey, ghee and molasses mixed together and a man with dysentery came and they told him good man this is this is curd honey ghee and molasses mixed together drink from it if you want isn't that beautiful again it's just drink from it if you want you don't have to you don't have to make yourself well drink from it if you want as you drink from it its color smell and taste will agree with you And after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. And after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So, primarily, that which is sukha now and sukha later is following the Buddha way, following the Buddha's teachings. There's pleasure. We, 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 we gain the pleasure from our practice. Even though times there's dukkha, the intention, the motivation to take responsibility for our own happiness, for our own liberation. That's sukha. There's sukha there. And, and it points to, the path points to engaging 
in wholesome actions that bring about sukha. So we're actually practicing, Sally was talking about it, we're practicing generosity from a place of happiness. I'm, I, I want to be generous. I feel happy to be generous. And then the consequences of that generosity is more happiness. There's a cycle, the circle of happiness. Or if I'm practicing kindness, metta, compassion, out of a place of happiness, then more happiness comes back. Or if I'm practicing truthfulness, I want to speak truthfully, be careful of my motivations, of my intentions, what comes back is more happiness. The Buddha says when we feel happy, then we abstain from things that are going to bring about more pain and suffering. Happiness brings about that that will, that intention, that motivation to abstain, to not do things. Because we're reflecting, we're being thoughtful, we're taking our time, we're not just acting in our old habitual way. It's, it, it becomes a kind of effortless quality of being where, where we're moving from our happy heart, our generous heart, our compassionate heart. It's an effortless cycle that begins to take form. And this brings this equanimity of mind, this balance of mind. The Buddha felt that this was such an important teaching, these four ways of undertaking things. He said that it can dispel darkness. And this is a quote from the Buddha about this. He says, Just as in autumn, in the last month of the rainy season, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun rises above the earth, dispelling all darkness from space with its shining and beaming and radiance, So, too, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure dispels with its shiny and beaming and radiance any other way, any other doctrine. Really understanding what's happy now and happy later. We're really being asked to reflect on the choices that we're making. It's all about our choices, moment to moment. And even though we're here on retreat, you know, many choices that we usually have in our daily life have been removed. It's still every moment is a moment of choice. Every moment. Am I going to go this way? Am I going to go that way? Am I going to do this? Am I going to go do that? Am I going to have the cup of tea? Am I going to go continue my walking? Am I going to go for my nap? Or am I going to sit upright? Am I, <laughs> am I going to speak out of this anger I have towards my partner at the yogi job? Or am I just going to feel it and stay with it and see if I can bring some balance of mind? I mean, this is, this is daily life practice. This is what we're being asked to do is bringing this mindful attention, this satipanya, wise mindfulness, to wise attention to what we're doing moment to moment to moment. This is what begins to bring about this deep transformation. 
oftentimes it's not very clear what our motivation is or how we're moving or what choices we're making because our habits are so conditioned. And they take control a lot of the time. So it's only when we're present, only when we're mindful, and we can pay attention to what we're actually doing that we can begin to make different choices. You know, in a lot of um, kind of new age or kind of mainstream spirituality talks about making different choices, but it's right here. You know? Every moment that we're present, we have a choice to continue to operate on automatic with our habit that could lead us to more pain or to turn it around, to do something differently. And I've, I've worked a lot with asking myself the question in my own practice of just asking, if I continue doing this, is this going to lead to more pain or is it going to lead to more happiness? This is a question that I re- it's really one I work with a lot. If I sit at the computer for another 15 minutes to try to get this done, is this going to lead my mind to be more balanced or is this going to lead to more <laughs> agitation and suffering? You know, it's right there. This choice, which way am I going to turn? Unfortunately, from a very early age, we're told to take sweet-tasting poison and told that it's going to be sweet-tasting medicine. This is going to be good for you. Do this, do that, have this, take care of this. This is going to make you happier. The sukha now, but really dukkha later for a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the time. This, I, I brought this little... Um, article that I got from the USA Today uh, a little while ago um, because it's so extreme in terms of this, the messages that we're getting or the, or the drink that we're getting, you might say. It goes like this. It's, um, the title is The FAA Seeks to Keep Billboards from Space. And it goes like the, the Federal Aviation Administration filed proposed regulations to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obtrusive advertising in zero gravity. Uh, objects, and the FAA says, objects placed in orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time. For instance, outsized billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen without a telescope. Big and bright advertisements almost also might hinder astronomers, <laughs> the FAA said. However, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce the existing law. So th- this is how far, far out... <laughs> Things are getting, you know? Drink this, you know, billboards in space. Advertising the next Botox or, you know, whatever it is that wants to be sold. Extreme. I just had to bring the most extreme one. But all of this just... That is pretty extreme, you have to admit. 
all of this just continues to perpetuate staying on this wheel of samsara, this wheel of getting and having and becoming and just without the deeper reflection. Stephen Batchelor says, samsara is like being on a wheel in a hamster's cage. There is a sense of never having moved on. We keep finding ourselves back at square one, a life of frustration. Get a sense of that? Where are we going? <laughs> is anything really changing? Everything's changing, but is there anything really changing? Our mind is perpetually searching for something. That message that these things, these experiences, are going to bring us some kind of completion, some kind of happiness, some kind of fulfillment. This treadmill going round and round and round, searching for some kind of refuge from our agitation, from our restlessness, without knowing that this running on the wheel is what's causing the restlessness, the searching, seeking, wanting. And we can see how our mind can just slip off into some kind of imagined refuge, you know, our fantasies or our plans or, you know, what we had or our regrets of what we've lost, you know, just this something that's going to make us feel more secure, comfortable, or more at ease. And the mind goes round and round and round. You might see it here, you know, you have your fantasies, but also fantasies about food and the the gratification food's going to give us and our our clothing, the kind of clothing we wear or the kind of zafu that we're sitting on and all our paraphernalia around our zafus and the kind of benches and the chairs and our cups and dishes and, you know, it just goes on and on and on, all these things that are going to do it for us. So finding this balance of mind, this equanimity, the stillness, where we let go. And the Buddha says that we need to develop our mind. We need to develop our mind to learn how to control our mind so that we don't get so pulled into the agreeable attributes of things or the disagreeable attributes of things. When we start to understand how the mind gets pulled in, this is how the mind can become begin to find some balance, come to a place of some balance. Otherwise, the mind gets glued or stuck to objects that are essentially empty of any kind of substance. You know, this kind of perception of something being solid or real, and then we stick to it. And because there really isn't much there, that thing is completely unreliable to give us any kind of lasting fulfillment because it falls apart. Things arise and pass, arise and pass. There's not really much there. And when we get stuck on things as if they're so solid, it's really hard to let go, and our mind becomes obsessed with holding on. It's the attachment. We become obsessed with these things. 
in one of the commentaries, it says, the mind is stuck, fastened to the object like flies to a ball of sugar. And if you've been in Asia, if you've been in India, that is such a great metaphor because that's what you see like in the lanes and, and in the different stalls are these, these flies stuck to balls of sugar in different cookies and candies and all the kind of with the flies all over them. And it's just really, you know, you just, it's, it's just right from the time of the Buddha. And in places, you know, in India, which are timeless that haven't changed, it's the same. It's just such a great metaphor for what happens to the mind. So, again, reflecting on this, I'm, I remembered this one time on an early three-month course. People sometimes would put little chocolates and things on pillows or in cups or, you know, I don't know if people still do that. We don't hear so much about it on this side. But uh, one time somebody put um, a, one of those small Reese's peanut butter cups that was wrapped in aluminum foil, and they're wrapped so well. If you've ever had a Reese's peanut butter cup, the foil goes right into the ridges, and you take the foil off, and it's just this yummy, you know, kind of chocolate and I got so excited because I hadn't had anything like this in weeks. And so I took it up to my room and I put it in a spot. And I really knew uh, there was a certain time that I was going to eat this. And, but I was going to wait because I really wanted to be in the right mind state. And, you know, I really wanted to be able to enjoy it. And it just sat there in this little windowsill. And I would look at it and covet it in a few days. And then the right moment came and very mindfully, I took off the foil, that wonderful foil around the chocolate, and put a bite into my mouth, and I chewed it, tasted it. It was fantastic. Took another bite, chewed it, tasted it. was fantastic. And in 30 seconds, it was over. 30 seconds. I had spent two days <laughs> building up this moment, this experience. <laughs> It was going to be like the highlight, and it went by so fast. It was like, wait a minute, I'm just starting. <laughs> I'm just getting into it, and it's over already. It was like it, it, I had one of the biggest insights at that moment that I had to Anicca. It was just so apparent that that thing that I had given so much uh, meaning to and it held so much of my happiness... <laughs> It was just gone, and I was left empty-handed. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for me to show me that I cannot hold on. But it's not like everything is going to be unsatisfactory. It's like it's not that there's no satisfaction. It's re- the Buddha said, I think this is from the Buddha, might be from a Tibetan lama, I'm not sure. But, the, but it goes like this. The beautiful things of this world remain so, but the noble one no longer strives after them. The beautiful things of this world remain so, but the noble one no longer strives after them. Things are still beautiful, things are still gratifying, but we don't have to hold on. So the Buddha gives teachings on how to 
develop our mind, to investigate the nature of things and to uh, train the mind so that we're not grasping onto the agreeable and the disagreeable attributes. And that this is really what brings about an establishment in equanimity, this equanimity that is associated with insight knowledge, where because we understand we're not attached or aversive or angry in the same way. And I want to read, uh, as, a, as I uh, finish this talk tonight, just want to read these beautiful similes from another sutta, um, a sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya uh, 152, where the Buddha talks about this development. It goes like this. When one sees a form, a sound, an odor, flavor, a a felt sense or a mind object, with the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, there arises in one what is agreeable, what is disagreeable, and what is indifferent. One understands that this has arisen, that this is conditioned and, and dependently arisen, What is peaceful and sublime is equanimity. The agreeable, the disagreeable, and the indifferent that arose cease, and equanimity is established. This is called the supreme development of the faculties, or the the five senses. And these are the similes that the Buddha uses, and I want to read these because I just find them to be so beautiful. And each simile goes right through each of the five senses in the mind, uh, mind objects, and and you can hear in the way that the Buddha's what the Buddha is pointing to the very kind of feeling of the sense base itself that he's referring to in the similes. So see if you can hear them. The first one is eyes and the forms that arise with eyes. When one sees a form with the eyes, just as a man with good sight having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes, might open them. So, too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable, disagreeable, and indifferent that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. When one hears a sound with the ear, just as a strong man might easily snap his fingers... So, too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable, the disagreeable, the indifferent that arose, cease just as quickly, rapidly, easily, and equanimity is established. When one smells an odor with the nose, just as raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off and do not remain there, so, too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable, the disagreeable, and the indifferent that arose cease just as quickly, rapidly, easily, and equanimity is established. When one tastes a flavor with the tongue, just as a strong man might easily spit a ball of spittle collected on the tip of his tongue, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable, disagreeable, and indifferent that arose cease just as quickly, rapidly, easily, and equanimity is established. When one touches a tangible with the body, 
just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable, disagreeable, and indifferent that arose cease just as quickly, rapidly, easily, and equanimity is established. And this one's my favorite. When one recognizes a mind object with the mind, just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, the falling of the drops might be slow, but they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So, too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable, disagreeable, and indifferent that arose cease just as quickly, rapidly, easily, and equanimity is established. We can begin to see this in our practice, in our meditation, and to understand that a doorway to equanimity is this direct investigation into the impermanent nature of things. When we see clearly the arising and the falling and we notice our reactions to that which is pleasurable, that which is painful, and we don't follow them, we don't cultivate those reactive states of mind, and the seeing of it, that too, just it appears and disappears easily, quickly when we pay attention in this way. So this is the medicine that is being prescribed for us. And of course, it isn't always sweet-tasting medicine. We know that. And yet, it is medicine. This is the medicine that's given to us, that is going to lead us down the path to more happiness, to more liberation, to freedom. It's not that we have to, but take it if you would like to. It's up to you. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.